Hello and welcome to Mistakes Were Made with me, Alex Steger. And me, Frank Talbot. Hey, Frank, today, a pretty great guest, right? Yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed uh, hearing from Christine Benz. Christine Benz, for those of you who do not know, is the Director of Personal Finance at Morningstar. She's based in Chicago, I think a veteran of Morningstar. I haven't looked up how long she's been there, but you can tell from our interview, it's been, it's been a long time. Started as a copy editor, no less, a, a noble profession, as all journalists know. Uh, and Christine was wonderful. Like, oh man, we, we, she, she was very open, very honest. You know, one of those guests who, who opens up by saying, hey, one mistake, I've got like 20, so where do you want to start? Which is always uh, makes for a fun conversation. And uh, yeah, Frank, I, th- I think you enjoyed it a lot as well. Yeah, definitely. Her wealth of personal finance experience, I think what she talks about will resonate with a lot of people, like, you know, the basics, what to do with your money. I think there's probably a lot of people out there asking themselves that question right now, you know, against the backdrop of massive uncertainty, falling markets, the mistakes that people are inclined to make in those situations. Basically, she just gives us the do's and don'ts of investing. Yeah, I, th- I think that's spot on, Frank. I think one thing that Christine has, which which was great, which you know, frankly, not all our guests do, is she's both been a fund analyst and a very good understanding of how to, you know, what makes a good manager and how to pick a fund. But she also kind of thinks about it much more in the round, you know, that personal finance, financial planning type things, which you know, as she speaks to very well, you know, it's not just enough to pick a fund; you've got to think about it a bit more. Yeah, and that's basically why why we're all here. I, I also like that. She very much showed us up with regard to the general level of podcast professionalism she brought to the table. You know, having having a pro on the show uh, doesn't make us look good at all. This is true, yeah. So for those of you who don't know, Christine also has her own podcast with Jeff Patak at Morningstar called The Long View. It's good. It's good. It's, it's different. It's good. Uh, it's, it's very good. And yeah, she's very professional and maybe a, li- maybe a little bit more professional than, than Frank and I. <laughs> But anyway, look, without further ado, here is our interview with Christine Benz. We start all these podcasts the same way, which is obviously helpful for us because it means we don't have to think of a new question. Uh, And we start it by asking our guests uh, to give us one or indeed more of uh, their biggest investment mistakes, but crucially as well, what they learned from it. Now, you said just before we started recording that you have far more than one. So I don't know what order you (laughs) want to do these in. But let's uh, let, let's get going. Let's work through that list. How much time do you have? So I I will kind of work chronologically, thinking about myself as an investor. My first big mistake came early in my tenure at Morningstar. So I started at Morningstar in 1993, and I was a copy editor. And we had this investment conference every year, which we still have. And I remember I was sitting in the audience and, you know, to Morningstar's credit, it would send people like me, copy editors to the conference just kind of to learn. I wasn't there to work. I was just there to learn. So I was sitting in the audience and I was watching Mark Mobius, who then was managing Templeton Developing Markets, Templeton Emerging Markets, which I think was the closed end version. He was kind of... Should should admit, yeah, for, for, former guest of this podcast. <laughs> Oh, good. Okay. So he was a rock star in the industry, especially at that time. It was early days for emerging markets investing, at least for U.S. investors. There was a lot of enthusiasm around the 
topic around the area. And it happened that he was just a fabulous speaker slash salesperson. So I remember my husband and I was had he, only Was he married. wearing the white suits back then? Uh, maybe. That, I can't remember. Look, he was later? definitely definitely bald, like cut a striking figure, and also just really um, delivered this tremendous address where he talked about, you know, how there's been this neglected, these neglected parts of the world that he thought were on the upswing and that would be good for those parts of the world, but also good for people who invested in those parts of the world. And I remember I came home, my husband and I had just been married a year. We probably had some money from our, you know, from getting married and uh, wedding gift money. And so we put some money into the fund and, you know, big mistake in that, you know, it probably wasn't a bad investment long-term, but we had no business just plowing funds into an emerging markets equity fund without any sort of recognition of like, what are you doing? What are you saving for? What's the point of this money? It was just like, kind of a performance chasing rookie mistake. And then I think we ultimately, you know, realized during that period, well, we wanted to buy a house within the next couple of years. And we hadn't, you know, it just didn't make any sense to be invested in emerging markets equity fund. So it wasn't really a debacle. And the good thing is, you know, it wasn't a lot of money, especially for us at that point. It was, it was maybe a lot of money for us at that point, but it wasn't a lot of money in the scheme of things. So uh, I think we realized we needed to be in something shorter term to help, you know, sort of match with what our goals were. So that's mistake number one. And actually, well, we're, we're in very similar positions. You know, we, you know, obviously adjacent to the industry. So you sort of, you hear a lot of uh, interesting, you know, we, we interview a lot of managers, you hear a lot of interesting things. And sometimes you walk away going, yep, that's, that's the edge. That's where I need to be. And then, yeah, but you're also exactly. probably often at the age where you haven't got a financial plan because let's say you're in your twenties and most people don't, uh, but yeah. And then, and then perhaps, you know, going into like triple level ETFs or Mark Mobius or whatever it is, it's, isn't, isn't the way forwards. But actually I did the opposite thing when I, when I first started investing, I went way too bearish. It was sort of 2007, hmm. eight, I was sort of so heavily affected by it. This podcast isn't about me, by the way. But then I, I, I went way, way too conservative uh, with, with my retirement plan for the first sort of five years of the sort of 10, 15 year rally that we're just coming out of the back of. Just sitting in bonds, just... just, just... <laughs> yeah, just inflation that linked was... the entire way. And then you saw stocks start to take off and then what'd you do? Pardon to China, yeah. right, Frank? China, China <laughs> So, you know, big picture when I think about the mistakes that I've made, probably the biggest mistake, the most costly mistake is a recurrent mistake. And that is sometimes ending up with cash, usually from a company bonus or having sold some company stock, which I've been lucky enough to get over the years. And so having this cash, kind of a lump sum, and equivocating over getting the money invested in the market. And part of that is inertia that usually I'm just busy. I don't have time to figure out what, you know, what to do with it. But it's also, I think, being, you know, too clever by half where you're sort of like, well, does, you know, the market seems kind of expensive. Like today, if you were to ask me, does it seem like a great time to invest? I'd be like, well, not, not really. But, 
you know, when I reflect on that issue, certainly that's been a big drag on my portfolio's results that with a long time horizon, it probably does make sense to just start moving that money in. So that's so cash probably- So cash is never king, is that what you're saying? No, it really hasn't been. Maybe it will be at some point, but I think I have given into this temptation to kind of second guess whether it makes sense to just move the money into the market. And over the arc of my investing career, having gotten the money invested sooner rather than later would have been the right call and, and not a, not the call that I've made consistently. Yeah, I'm in that boat. Uh, I've talked about this before. I won't get into it too much, but uh, for reasons that are boring and complicated and to do with having a British retirement savings and being based in the US, a lot of my retirement savings at one point have been in, been in cash. And then it's always like, well, at what point am I buying back? Yeah, and, and sort of overthinking it and go, well, things look a little pricey right now. Would you would you a correction? I'm not going to pile in now. And then you know, making that decision for, you know, another year and another year, and another year. And then there's never a good time, is there? Exactly. So you might as well just, just get on with it. Exactly. So you, you said that was a recurring mistake. Have you made that mistake recently? You're making that mistake now? Probably a little bit. I mean, we do. And the fact is my husband and I are getting older. We're not, you know, re- ready to retire or anything, but we're, you know, thinking about, well, should we de-risk our portfolio? So, um, yes, we probably have more cash in our account than we than we should have. And that's the other thing, you know, sort of the the differential between cash and bonds, I guess, is probably the big decision for the funds that we have set aside. And it's hard to be excited about either, really, in this environment. Uh, but probably, if I were to think about it, we'd probably lose less by at least having the money in bonds, um, you know, given where inflation is today. If it's, versus- if it's any consolation, I, we had um, Richard, Richard Thaler on the podcast in the last um, series, season, and he had, he made, he confessed to making the same mistake. He hmm. said he'd sold a, a property sort of somewhere mid sort of towards the beginning or, or midway through the kind of pandemic and then just was just wasn't sure about the market and, and when to put it in so even someone who's quite literally written the book on, you know, <laughs> exactly doing doing not doing that was still sitting on his hands and and had been out of the market for, for longer than he thought and missed missed a lot of the recovery right so, um i love company, to hear that I i'm guess. in his company right yeah this is it well look I, i'm interested to hear also your your sort of thoughts more broadly on common mistakes that you see people make and, and, and particularly sort of through, through some of your research but I suppose before we get to other people's mistakes you, are there any others of your own yeah you've given us two couple, you said you had a long more. list so let's we should work through yours first and then we can you know turn and, and, and shame the wider investment world this sounds good so one is I guess sort of smaller bore it's an issue with asset location like putting the wrong investment types in the wrong account types. So within our taxable accounts, my husband and I have had a couple of active funds over the years. So I mentioned that Templeton fund at the outset, but that that's not really what I'm talking about here. Mainly the idea is you've got something that's kicking off a lot of capital gains on an ongoing basis, an active fund, and it's just not 
best held inside of a taxable account. You're better off holding that stuff inside of tax sheltered accounts. So I've done it with a couple of funds. Longleaf Partners was the first one, uh, probably a good 15 uh, or more years ago. And then um, more recently, we've had Vanguard Prime Cap Core in our taxable account. And that one, as much as we like it, has been kind of an, uh, I wouldn't say a nightmare, but it hasn't been great from a tax standpoint where we've had ongoing tax bills. And I guess, you know, if there's sort of a silver lining, it's that we're kind of prepaying our tax bills that when we eventually sell, and I think we've had some pretty nice gains in the fund over our holding period, we having received these distributions on an ongoing basis, we're sort of paying up in advance, but that's not the way to do it. Um, And I guess one thing I'm thinking about doing with our taxable portfolio is looking at maybe unwinding the the prime cap core and actually just putting it all into total market index because that will be tend to be the most tax efficient thing to hold for US equity exposure versus an active fund. And then I wanted to sort of reflect on a work mistake, which was early in my tenure as an analyst, which was sort of in the mid to late 90s period. Um, I think I was overly credulous uh, amid the growth stock phenomenon where um, I was our Janus analyst at the time. You you two probably don't remember, but Janus, you probably know. Well, I I know about it. Do you know, I know about it now because of, yes, so so to be clear, Frank's a a tiny bit older than me, but we would have both been, maybe not in shorts, but certainly, you know, uh, baggy jeans or something at this point and and not focused on the dot-com uh boom or bust but um i know about this mainly because uh, of all the sort of um hype and chatter around kathy wood and arc and a lot of people making that comparison to to to, to some of those janus funds and i forget some of their names are they all sort of planet planetary names or um <laughs> but oh, they had the lots funds. and lots yeah there was an orion lots of sort of, yes uh lots janus of techie 20- lo- Lots of techie growth funds. Janus 20 is the one that people sort of make the comparison to ARC about, don't they? Sort of very concentrated uh, tech stock fund. Exactly. And I think it's a quite a fair comparison, really. Um, so there was a lot of Kool-Aid drinking going on at that time. I think, you know, I was talking to enough value managers who were highly skeptical that it did give me some reservations. But in hindsight, there were a lot of flashing red signals and I, you know, should have been more skeptical, should have asked all my stupid questions of those managers about exactly how, and stupid, I would put in quotes, I had questions that I probably did not give voice to. So I think that's uh, something that I never forgot. It was a lesson that I learned because I saw how badly investors got burned. I, you know, talked to investors and that was another thing where investors might have five or six Janus funds in their portfolios. And so they were multiplying their exposures. And so then when everything sank, they, they perhaps thought they had built diversified portfolios that were really were all invested in the same risky stuff. And they, and they all went down at once. So observing that pain, talking to investors, that was a lesson I never forgot and have been sort of a card-carrying boglehead ever since that time where really I, um, you know, push back. I'm not shy about 
asking all of the questions I have when it comes to uh, these very euphoric seeming investments. It's it's interesting timing you bringing that up now. Are you seeing a lot of Kool-Aid drinking in the market today or, you know, at least a sort of about valuations are pretty, pretty lofty right now. There's some, some fairly speculative uh, things going on, particularly, you know, in EVs or, or cryptos, wherever. Are you seeing the same kind of thing today? Are you applying that lesson that you've learned? to today? Well, definitely. I mean, absolutely. I would say sort of the apex of that was the summer of 2020, where we, you know, the GameStop mania was like, oh my gosh, are we really going to do this again? But I think the fact (laughs) is that you have, you know, a new cohort of investors who do not remember what we all went through during that period. So yeah. And new dynamics around like how that information is, you know, or Reddit, basically, Twitter, social media and things. I think that obviously sort of accelerates and, and uh, yeah, hype, hypes up, sort of magnifies is the word I'm looking for, so some of those trends. Absolutely. And so, yes, it's not a perfect parallel with that late 90s era, but I do see significant parallel parallels and peril for these new investors who are climbing into some some of these investments without really any knowledge of what they're getting into. I wish wish that younger investors would just get started in sort of a minimal, minimalist hands-off way, but um, maybe people are just, you know, just sort of determined to repeat the mistakes of the past. I don't know. How do you think uh, that that event in the, the sort of the start of the century affected that cohort of investors that were new? So I'm trying to draw parallels with today. So you've got that fresh cohort today. They're going to get burned if they haven't already. Uh, and and how, how is that? What biases feed into maybe the investment decisions they make later on with their personal wealth? Yeah, it's a really good question. I have to say, it seems like and of course it's hard to generalize about all investors, but it seems like for the most part, um, people recovered reasonably well and they've had a great experience over the subsequent couple of decades. Um, investors who have, uh, stuck with equities have, have done pretty well despite having endured that sort of lost decade, uh, at the beginning of, of, uh, you know, 2000. So, um, in terms of, lessons for them. I think that that they've recovered pretty well. If anything, I think that there's sort of a hesitance to de-risk portfolios, especially among older adults, given that they have had such a great experience with the equity market. It's hard to convince them that they need anything but stocks, especially given how uh, sort of uncompelling the alternatives are today. We should add our standard caveat here, Frank, for our listeners beyond the US. US stocks we're talking about, obviously, yes. between UK, Europe, EM, all these other oh, diversified places, which is something the US doesn't bother with. Uh, you know, it's not being as it's not being as great. I do. I, I, wanted... I, I do. I keep evangelizing for globally diversified portfolios and continue to have one myself. I wanted to get back quickly to, 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 to the Janice point, if that was all right. And I had two, two follow-ups. One was just um, your must, you sort of, your mistake there was it in investing in these funds, not no. necessarily specifically Jan, or was it was it in um, your analysis of them, yeah. or was it yeah, it's sort of more more thinking. the latter. I don't think that I was uh, overly indulging in those sorts of exposures in my own portfolio. I always have always been 
pretty balanced and pretty hands-off. Um, and we also had some great value-oriented funds in our Morningstar 401k, like Oakmark Select has been there for many years. So I think I always had pretty balanced exposure. Overall, though, I think I, um, in terms of my analysis, I wasn't harsh enough on the fund family. I had covered them for many years and, you know, built up, I wouldn't call them friendships, but certainly built up decent interpersonal relationships with some of these people. And, you know, to the point where like, if they were doing something in their portfolios, they would, I would be the one to get the call about what they what they were doing. Um, And there was actually some competition, you know, among people covering Janice to sort of get the first scoops on what they were doing because they were that hot and that influential in the space. So I think it was a little bit of sort of like, well, you know, I still want to be able to have this access. How hard do I want to push on this? And I remember, you know, speaking to Janice 20's manager and he would be, if I would even, you know, inflect my analyses with a negative sentiment, he would get on the phone and say, you know, have I done something to offend you personally? You know, he was very sort of, um, cost caustic and, uh, you know, a little bit, uh, willing to, to push back. And that was hard as a new analyst and, you know, as a sort of human being who overall kind of likes other people to like me, it was a hard spot to be in. So I think I probably didn't give, give voice to some of the negative feelings that I, that I had for that reason. This actually, this is a really neat segue to, to the second thing I want, wanted to pick up on, which was you sort of mentioned, you know, you didn't ask some of the, the dumb questions, not dumb questions, but questions that in the moment can, and I, and I know this for, for being in this position myself, you know, that in the moment can make you look perhaps dumb in the eyes of the person that, that you're interviewing because you sort of, you know, they're like, well, it's silly, isn't it? But, but right. actually it's kind of, kind of important. Uh, and, and, I, and I think a lot of our uh, listeners are, you know, fund analysts or you know pick funds for a living and do due diligence and things and i would think particularly people at the early part of their career definitely this would be something they would relate to and kind of what you also just said around kind of you have a relationship with these managers to some degree and it's you know no one oh well some people fewer people enjoy sort of just hostility for its own sake <laughs> right. right most people prefer you know cordial relationships with with people that they have to work with so i think it is a challenge isn't it for, for anyone doing due diligence and analysis of sort of balancing that sort of need uh to, to sort of have a nice relationship also as you said wanting access and wanting information quickly and, and, and early and things and i would think this is a an issue that many analysts face and maybe one that they probably face earlier in their career and over time get more comfortable with a asking quote unquote stupid questions and b having not sort of perfectly friendly relationships do, do you think that's fair that sort of definitely you care less definitely. basically yeah i think your th- your skin thickens and it's just easier um i often think about a great piece Michael Lewis wrote on this very topic about how he wished that uh, people had asked harder questions in the period leading up to the financial crisis. He wished journalists had asked and dug into some of the derivatives exposure that would uh, contribute greatly to that crisis. Um, And so 
yeah, I think you're absolutely right that as you get more seasoned, you do thicken up your skin and get comfortable asking those hard questions. And, you know, I think also just sort of remembering who you're working for. You're not working for them. You're working for whomever you're trying to serve with what you're writing or, you know, talking about in your work and just always using that as your true north. And so, you know, sometimes that entails asking hard questions. Sometimes it entails asking questions that you know the answer to, but you're audience may not know the answer to. Um, and, you know, it's, it, it's sometimes hard to do that where you're like, well, this is going to look like I don't know the answer to this. I know the answer to this, but I still need to ask for them. And so I think always remembering who who you're actually working for is crucial. What, what was one of the questions, the most important question you would have asked if you'd had your time again to those Janus managers? Well, probably about value. I mean, I was asking them about valuations. I was asking them hard questions. I think the my conclusions weren't playing out as fully in my analyses as they should have been. That it was sort of in my head, like, yeah, these portfolios are taking crazy levels of risk. And this exposure in the portfolio duplicates other exposure in the portfolio. And by the way, all these funds have the same holdings. And what happens when this stuff starts going down? All these funds are going to go down at the time, at the same time. And so I had that in my mind um, and did not, I think, properly give voice to it. It probably was around the margins or sort of in the last paragraph, like, you know, after I had talked about how great performance had been, but there are these risks. And then the conclusion was maybe a little bit more milk toast than it should have been. Whereas I look at, you know, our work on ARC today on, on Kathy Wood's Not pulling fund. any punches there, are you? No. no. <laughs> um, see, seen the most recent report. <laughs> right. Robbie, Robbie Greengold has fully, uh, fully internalized the lessons that I, um, that I, learned uh 20 years ago so that's i think a, overall a, a good development good good for investors it's, and serving serving the audience well well this, this is christine i mean you, you, this is great you'd be very open and i think particularly for our for our for our um our sort of fund analyst audience there's a lot of lot of stuff here that that they could sort of pick up on i realized we we, we haven't covered sort of i suppose we've covered a lot of your mistakes we yes. did say to you we would give you the opportunity at least to talk about sort of i we, we slightly touched on this um big errors that you see perhaps going on today, whether, you know, in the markets and, and sort of Frank maybe touched on a couple of those, but but I suppose also away from markets more broadly around sort of habits that people have, sort of saving habits, savings for retirement or sort of financial planning, um, misbehaviors or missteps that, that you see in, in your role and in, in your conversations and, yeah, and anything that sort of springs to mind, really. Yeah, the, the main thing is complexity. Um, and I do these annual portfolio makeovers every year, usually five in a given year where I work with real investors on their portfolios. We'll do sort of a before and after and also do some financial planning around the margins. Um, and the complexity thing is the main thing I see in people's portfolios where they have a lot of moving parts. And some of that is out of necessity because people have these different tax receptacles. And so they want to diversify each of those pools of assets. But people have way too many holdings in their portfolio. I remember I was working with someone, I think it was last year, and she was very focused on dividend paying stocks, individual stocks. She was basically running a mutual fund. 
you know, with 100 plus holdings, individual dividend paying stocks, I think at the end of the day, that portfolio looked a lot like an equity income mutual fund. And meanwhile, she was also, I think, in her late 70s, very uh, with it and very uh, astute investor, actually. But you know, in talking to her, I was like, do you really want to keep running a mutual fund? You are retiring. I'm sure you've got other things you'd rather do with your time. And uh, we found actually that the exposures in her portfolio, she she diversified well, but she just had all these moving parts. And I see it again and again. That was maybe, you know, an extreme example. But people think more is more when it comes to putting together their portfolios. So they just have way too many holdings. And I I think the financial services industry really sells complexity. You know, I, I joke that it's the financial complexity complex because they like the idea of, you know, we're selling complex stuff. You need us on an ongoing basis as your helper. And more products, right? I mean, you exactly. know, if, if your portfolio is complicated in, you know, it, it behooves uh, people with lots of products to for, for investors to have lots of things in there rather than say, I don't know, six funds, <laughs> right. which probably probably seems like enough. Right. Um, exactly. So I would say that that is the big issue. And, you know, it's sort of a side effect of that. Yes, it's a lot to keep tabs on. You probably are paying more for that sprawling portfolio of a bunch of different holdings than you would if you just, uh, you know, parked it in a diversified index fund and, and called it a day. So that's the biggie that I think investors make in their enthusiasm for investing. They just get things to be way more complicated than they really need to be. That's really interesting. I mean, one thing I was surprised about, we do, we do a piece um, in our RAA focused title called, called My Model Portfolio. We speak to an RAA and we get them to share. We normally ask them, for, you know, sort of their, their kind of 60, 40 broad-based thing that they might start off for a client with and one thing that really surprised me when i first came over here in 2016 was how many of them for the equity portion there wouldn't be a fund they go oh we just run that in-house ourselves and like i don't want to uh dump on some of our readers here <laughs> but but a part of me is like what, what what why why are you why are you why are you picking picking the stocks like just it didn't, it didn't make any sense to me and, and i was surprised by how many people s- seem to still do that it, um, it is surprising, especially when, you know, how much more data do we need to show us that professional active managers in the equity space have a very difficult time adding value relative to a simple benchmark? Why, individual investor, do you think that you will be able to do any better? And yes, you have, you know, no external pressures. You can have a much longer time period, holding period with some of this stuff. But it does uh, make me wonder about why advisors and individual investors are embarking on this journey of, of picking individual stocks. And I would say I have a related worry about this whole business of direct indexing. Um, this whole idea of people building these bespoke portfolios uh, with an effort to, you know, have them adhere to their ESG 
uh, considerations or, you know, to do tax loss selling tax or whatever. Hosting, the motive, yeah. yeah. It does make me wonder, are we losing something? I think, you know, at Morningstar, we feel like we have spent, spent years trying to make this a more transparent marketplace, trying to, you know, shed light on who's doing well, who's not doing well. Are we losing something if we're just delegating that to people to, you know, go out and build their own portfolios? And I, I suppose they're going back, back back to your previous point. It, um, if one was to be cynical, one could say, well, it, again, it, it helps uh, a complex selling complexity. If you go, well, hang on a minute, guys. Actually, what you want to do is move away from these really cheap, broad-based, <laughs> diversified index funds and start doing it all yourself. But you need someone to do it for you because there's lots of, you know. And then so it's sort of it, it it could be good for for other people in the market. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, you look at these trends one by one, and a lot of it does, I think, revolve around this. The asset management industry is seeing flows go to these, you know, low to zero margin products, index tracking products, and saying, wait, how do we help make a save here? And it's not to say that there might not be some power in direct indexing. There may be. I don't know. But the fact is that we are losing a lot of accountability, I think, if everyone's going to go build their own portfolio. Obviously, you've done a lot of roles during your time at Morningstar. You started as a copy editor, became a fund analyst, and then you've gravitated towards the personal finance side. What have you learned from shifting from a, being a pure fund analyst to thinking about the holistic personal finance? You know, what, what's the key takeaway for you there? What, what, what do fund analysts not think about when they're picking funds? Oh, that's a good question. And and thankfully, we have a lot more collaboration. I'm part of a little team that is focused on portfolio construction and financial planning and retirement planning. And the fund analysts are really interested in spending more time on sort of role in portfolio considerations. You know, they want that to be part of how they're approaching funds. So I think that we're going to be a little tighter knit as we approach those things going forward. But um, I guess I've learned that investing is one of the smaller pieces of the challenge that people have on the way to financial wellness that, you know, I used to think it was the main thing that made or break someone's financial plan. And I think as I've gotten broader in terms of the things I think about, I've realized that it's actually maybe not a minor thing, but not certainly as important as decisions like, you know, what what are you doing with your human capital? Have you invested it early in your career, invested in it earlier in your career so you're able to accentuate your earnings power over your lifetime? How have you uh, set up a savings program for yourself? Have you automated that so it's really easy and frictionless? Um in terms of your asset allocation, are you in a somewhat sane asset allocation given your life stage? All of those questions, I think, are so much more important than investment selection. Um, and I think that that has occurred to me as I has, have focused on the, the broader suite of considerations regarding um, financial planning and financial wellness. Fantastic. Well, look, that was our interview with Christine. Uh, really, really enjoyable one. And I think, as, as we alluded to at the beginning, loads of lessons there, Frank. Lots, lots to chew on. Loads of lessons. I mean, the first one is don't don't get swept up in in a great story. You know, she she was guilty of profit chasing, investing with Mobius at the wrong time. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's the, the story part of it, isn't it? It's interesting. We, you and I have both heard from a lot of fund managers, interviewed a lot of fund managers, seen them speak. And, and it is easy to sort of, you know, uh, be impressed by by some charisma or, you know, buy into um, uh, more than a narrative, uh, someone's thesis uh, and be like, yep, this is this is it. That's the cool. Uh, and I think there's a, I, I mean, one thing that I took from that too is also just thinking about what's it for? You know, just because just because it's a good fund, what what do you need it for? You're in your yeah. your late twenties, or you know, well, what are we now? <laughs> mid mid to late thirties. Um, actually, actually, um, Alex, forty today. But thanks. Are you actually happy? <laughs> but are you really <laughs> yeah. happy That's birthday? That's why I come on the podcast because I thought what's better what to be- do? What better thing to do, listeners? Oh, this is <laughs> what a joy. Of course, by the time it comes out, you'll be you'll be you know a week into your forties. Um, how exciting we'll talk about this afterwards um but yeah exactly what what are you buying the fund for you know uh obviously you know is it is it in your retirement account not in your retirement account but just thinking thinking more thoroughly uh about what that investment's for which i think is something that uh we've probably all been guilty of particularly in our early investing days yeah i like also some of her mantra about always stay invested it's the basics right maybe you could you know point to the recency of the fact that, you know, she's a US investor and, you know, in the US until very recently, it's been perpetual sunshine uh, as to why she might say that, but she's by no means alone in that viewpoint. Don't try and time the market. Dollar cost average your way in. See, I'm 40. Um, I really need to to heed this advice myself, you know, personally. Um, and, and that point, again, she makes about not trying to be too clever and kind of wait it out, even though things have sold off since we had this interview with Christine. Uh, I think uh, right now might not seem like the best time to invest, right? You might be too smart about it and think, yeah, there's still scary inflation numbers, rising interest rates, war in Europe. You know, the point about to be, being too clever as well is what Jason Sue said last week. Yeah, I think it's a common theme, isn't it, through throughout these interviews that we've done. A lot of the mistakes of people trying to be trying to be too smart, whether that's, you know, with a particular investment or whether it's, you know, sitting on the sidelines waiting. But, but either way, it's that sort of, it's that idea of a little or indeed a lot of knowledge being, sometimes quite a dangerous thing and actually just just being in the market helps another pearl of wisdom that she came up with was that you know maybe everyone else has thought about this set for me but if you're in an investment you think will generate a lot a lot of capital uh it's in a growth area make sure it's in a tax efficient structure <laughs> i'd never thought about that it does sound extremely basic and uh, maybe you had alex and indeed every one of our listeners um but it's it's such a basic tenant of investing i don't mind saying i was too stupid to think about it no, I, th- I think you're right. I think it's it's easy to say, isn't it? But I mean, look, she acknowledged that they hadn't always done that. Uh, they being, you know, her and her husband. But I thought it was also interesting that that as a result of that, she's sort of making those moves. Some of the more active funds sit in the sit sit, sit in the non-taxable accounts. Some of some of the more sort of index-based ones in the taxable things, which was a an interesting, uh, I suppose, level of detail there too. But yeah, no, a, a really important point and one that I think again. People probably get to over time, but probably when they start is not something they necessarily think through. One final thing that I wanted to touch on without sort of talking about everything that we spoke about was was, was what she said around her time uh, as an analyst of the Janus funds, the sort of very tech-heavy growth funds at around the time of the, uh, the dot-com boom and bust. And I think you and I, Frank, as people who speak to fund managers, interview managers, can probably relate to that uh, sort of, you know, you might think something about a fund, but do you push it hard enough when you speak to them or do you kind of get those points across in your write-ups and stuff? And just a sort of element of pulling pulling one's punches a little bit um, and how that could be something that you 
regret. Yeah, very honest about the situation with Janice, feeling like ultimately she could have done more to interrogate some of the claims and the moves that they were making, you know, doubling down on certain areas when the valuations were ridiculous. And and you're right, you know, do do we pull our punches? It made me think, could we have done more recently? You know, uh, me, you, Citywire, journalists everywhere. Uh, around the the frothy markets in the last few years, but I think I wasn't there in the dot com. Um, but it, from my perspective, it's been more balanced this time. Lots of times we pointed out that markets, particularly in the US, have been in a real purple patch. Valuations over the last few years looked really sketchy. Markets highly irrational, blindly ignoring the inflation threat, despite the fact that I mean, let's face it, you and I, Alex, and and the wider editorial team, been talking about this nonstop since the end of twenty twenty. Inflation, 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 um, and um, the regularity was. You know, we we definitely put that into the into the copy. We asked portfolio managers that on a con- consistent basis over the last couple of years. What does it mean if it happens? Yeah, I mean, I think it's something that probably now in the downturn people are are, are better at doing. Mm-hmm. But 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 in the run up to it, you know, we were you know every journalist, analyst, etc., anyone who interviews these people probably is guilty of to some degree. And I think always when you look back, you can think, well, we could have done better. We could have pushed harder and things. Uh, so it'd be interesting to see kind of, I suppose, how that shakes out over the next next few months. Uh, but yeah, an- another fantastic point and another uh, another another pearl of wisdom from, from all. It was a very fun interview with Christine. Uh, and on that note, it's goodbye from me, Alex Steger. And goodbye from me, Frank Talbot. Mm-hmm.